Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. I'm Ed Foster, and welcome to another Goodwood Carpool. I'm the Deputy Head of Motorsport Content here at Goodwood, and as many of you have already seen, I've uh, done a bit of cruising around the estate to see if we can pick some people up, do some car sharing, get the traffic off the roads, and I've heard that there is someone particularly special here today at Goodwood. So not only is this man an absolutely genius car designer, Formula One designer, but he's also very topical at the moment because not only has he been involved in the new TVR project, but he's just launched some teaser images of a new IGM two-seater sports car. Now, this, man, this man's hero was Colin Chapman, and you can see that through all his cars and the fact that lightness for him is absolutely key. So one of the stories I heard was that when he was designing the McLaren F1, he had two thicknesses of washers. And in order to use a thicker one, the people working on the car had to go and see him and argue their case for every single thicker washer that they had to use, just to make sure that the McLaren F1 was as light as possible. You probably guessed it. We are hoping to pick up Gordon Murray from the Goodwood Hotel and see if he wants to go for a bit of a drive. So let's just see. There he is. Excellent. Bang on time. In here. Oh. Oh. Here he is. <laughs> Morning, Gordon. Morning. It's a very, very early start. Bright and sunny day. It was bright and sunny, sunny wintry day. <laughs> yes. Um, you got time for a bit of a bit of a drive around and a and a chat? Definitely. Excellent. Excellent. Um, so I have today actually called Goodwood Security to make sure all the gates are open. Right. Because uh, last time with Dario Franchetti, um, we got to the top of the hill and everything was closed, so we had to reverse back down. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, you were here as for the Festival of Speed in your IGM, weren't you? That's right. Yeah. Turning around here, actually. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that was a fantastic experience. It was like, um, talk about nostalgia. Uh, it's interesting because the, the car, the original car, which I raced in 67 and 68 in South Africa, um, has disappeared, long since disappeared. We yeah. tried for a couple of decades to find it, but really? it's, I think eventually a friend of mine out there got a detective on it and it's the, did a paperwork trail and it's gone. Really? But I still have all the drawings and photographs, so yeah. we've just built uh, chassis number two if you like a continuation right. and um, it was finished just in time for Goodwood so right, and, it, and, it, and it worked pretty well didn't it yeah I mean we I'd only done a couple of straight runs up and down um, the runway at Dunsfold yeah. uh, and we brought it here so I had no, when I got to that right hander there that I had was a no <laughs> idea how I was going to handle oversteer understeer and actually the setup because the one thing I didn't keep was spring rates and damper rates yeah um, we changed the ride height a bit after Dunsfold, the, the pitch of the car, um, the incidents, but that's about it. And, and it's just about spot on. By really? the fourth run, I was dr doing four-wheel slides all the way through these quick ones <laughs> up here, so, and it was perfect. So are you going to do more with it? I'd love to. Yeah, yeah I'd love to do... Um, I started hill climbing and sprints just before I went circuit racing, so I did a few months of hill climbs and then quite like to do a couple of hill climbs. I like the sudden death aspect of hill climbs, where there's no, <laughs> yeah. there's no you just yeah. sit there, yeah. there's one cold, chance. and yeah. there's one shot at it. I quite like that. I think that's terrifying. 
whereas circuit racing you can build you can build yeah. that unless you get the red haze. This is a difficult one. Yeah, Morecambe, the yeah. one where everyone yeah. comes off. Yeah, I nearly came off the first time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the, but the kind of the, the exciting news at the moment is that there's a, there's a new teaser image of another IGM. Yes. So it's it, I've, I've sort of read as much about it as I can, mm -hmm. but it's quite. It's, I think it's purposefully quite vague what you're going to make. It is purposely vague. Yeah. Uh, and I don't mind admitting that because. We're doing this for lots of different reasons, uh, not least of all because we have a 50-year-old brand. You know, yeah. if you're starting, you're starting a car company um, from scratch. Uh, Tesla's a good example. Yeah, uh, it takes a few years for people to recognise what Tesla stands for, and I'm sure they do now. Um, but that's that had a lot of investment behind it and it was a huge operation. If you were starting a small car company and look how many people do and look how many people fail, yeah. it's really difficult to kick off a brand. And uh, IGM was on my first car in which I raced in 67 and this just happened to be the 50th anniversary. Yeah. So yeah. we had a little um, exhibition to, to celebrate that and relaunch the brand. So it's not a new brand. So that was one reason for doing um, the car company, but there are multiple reasons, really. And but it's 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 going to be using your your ice cream process, isn't That's it? That's right. Which, so yeah. just just sort of tell everyone listening what what in a nutshell what is the ice cream process? Because okay. I mean it, you you call it very disruptive technology. It is, which yeah. um, is is quite an interesting phrase. Well, it goes back. It really goes back to my early years again. I've always been interested in structural composites, as as um, not just in cars. I was very much into engines and aeroplanes and things when I was growing up. In fact, I started doing a bonded plywood car when I was 15 or 16 really? with a two-stroke 50 engine in the back, um, and then quickly progressed to real cars. So I dumped that and, and built the racing car. And went racing, but um, all the way through Brabham. Uh, Brabham were the first company to do composite rear wings, for example. Uh, we were the first person, people to incorporate structural composites in a monocoque in 1970, yeah. uh, 1979 with the Brabham BC48 Alfa Romeo. Uh, of course, the, um, the McLaren F1 was the first full carbon fibre road car. It was the first car to use a carbon clutch. And all the way through, there's been these sort of composite milestones. and. Back in, I was at McLaren back in about 98, 99, and I thought there must be a way. I know it's expensive, and I know that it takes a long time to process the materials, but there has to be a way of bringing this fantastic technology down to a level where motorists like you and I yeah. in everyday cars can actually benefit from not just the lightweight, but the strength and the stiffness and the, and the handling characteristics that that imparts to the car, all the, all the benefits that we see in Formula One and, and yeah. every racing car, not just Formula One now, of course, every racing car out there is composite structure. Um, so I started work on it back in the 90s, thinking about um, how we can do it. And there's three problems. One is material cost, one is process time, yeah. and the worst one to solve was how you attach point loads, and by that I mean not just the obvious ones like engine and gearbox and suspension, but in a road car you've got probably 120 different point loads to bolt to a structure. So you've got things like seat belt mounts, seat yeah, okay. mounts, steering columns. And in a racing car, every time you want to do that, you've got to 
machine a hole in your honeycomb core between the two skins of the composites and you have to put an insert in and then you drop it back in the jig and you drill 140 holes and it, it takes not right. hours, it takes yeah. days. I set myself a bogey time of two minutes, so anything that took longer than two minutes was never going to make high volume production. Right. So we had to solve those three ish problems and I actually started work on this at McLaren. McLaren weren't particularly interested, so I actually left McLaren to set up ten, yeah. ten years ago to set up GMD and develop the process. So basically, we solved those three problems. So we now have, for the first time, racing car structures, if you like, available at very affordable cost for the everyday motorist. Right. Um, and um, that's the the background to iStream. So yeah. we have a we have a honeycomb panel. The reason why racing cars are so stiff and so strong and crash so well is the fact they don't just use carbon the same way people use steel or aluminium. That's a monolithic um, single sheet, if you like. Even some supercars built today are built with monolithic carbon, just a okay. single sheet. But that's really just um, metallic technology and changing the material. You don't get the real benefit of yeah. composites until you separate two skins with a core. Okay. Then you get massive stiffness from a lightweight and you get a massive amount of energy absorption. And that's why racing cars are so strong. So I wasn't about to just use carbon or glass. It doesn't have to be carbon. Um, I was setting out to use, to find a way of making honeycomb panels in under two minutes for a few euros and right. find a way of attaching it. And iStream basically solves those three problems. So it's genuinely Formula One technology for the everyday motorist. Amazing. I was, uh, just rewinding all the way, because I, I was reading a few bits and pieces, and I obviously knew you came over to interview at Lotus. Yes. But I didn't realise that you, it took you a while to come over because you had to sell everything yes. in order to afford to come over. Yes, well we were, <laughs> because growing up in South Africa, I was in the sort of English set part, which is Natal and Durban yeah. of South Africa, and we were Commonwealth. Right. So it was relatively easy to move around uh, within the Commonwealth and to the UK, obviously. And uh, unfortunately for me, we, we became a republic <laughs> <laughs> before I decided to come over. So suddenly I, I was in the... Um, we went from being Commonwealth and relatively easy to get into the UK to uh, aliens, basically, I think we were called. Right. And, uh, so the only way you could get into the UK was to arrive with a pocket full of money and your length of stay was absolutely proportional to the money you had in your pocket. Really? So I spent six months before I came over. Uh, oh, and you had to have a return ticket as well. Right. So the cheapest return ticket I could find was, a, was an old converted cargo liner. 130 pounds return to the UK. That was, that was quite a lot of money, though. It, yeah, relatively, but yeah. relative to flying, it was still yeah, cheap. Yeah, so much cheaper. Yeah. And um, so there was that, and then I just sold everything. I sold, you know, the racing car, my road cars, my record collection. I mean, it, absolutely everything, uh, and, and got enough money scraped together to arrive in the UK and go. There you go. And they gave me six months. Really. On the passport. But, that was how much sort of admiration you had for Colin Chapman, I guess, because he was yeah. he was a bit of a hero of yours. He was, and yeah. and I thought, even though I had designed 
my own car and done a lot of the engine work. I actually started as an engine designer and had to learn about chassis design in order to build a racing car. I always liked, loved engine design. Yeah. My final year project at college was an internal combustion engine, for example. Um, so I didn't think I was anywhere near good enough to apply for a racing job. Right. So I applied to the road car company at Lotus which was called Lotus Engineering in those days. Um, and I wrote to Chapman several months before I was, and then he, he answered positively, um, not with a job, but with, um, it sounds like we could use a person like you. Yeah. I suggest you contact this chap called Brian Luff in engineering. And that's how I got the interview. Yeah, which, but that never turned out to be an interview, because in the, no, the, because the, the, I, the big depression I, I think it was two or three months before I left on the boat. The boat took, the boat broke down on the way over, so instead of taking three weeks, it took a month. Um, one of the engines packed up in the Bay of Biscay in a storm. Um, so I, th I think it was probably, I don't know exactly, but I think it was probably two or three months I had talked to Lotus before I came over. And there was a depression going on in England. I can't remember the reason for that. Was it a fuel crisis? Could have been early 70s. Anyway, yeah. I came over the end of 69. And uh, when I got there, there were all these unsold lotus, lotuses out on the, um, on the aerodrome really? outside, yeah. the, outside the office. So uh, I didn't get the interview. Yeah, and there was, I, mean, there were, I think 60 people were let go, weren't there, or something like it that? Was, it was a lot of people yeah. had just been let go, yeah. But in, interestingly, in a, in a, well, it's not that you didn't get, it's not getting your own back, but many years later, Colin Chapman, I think you said, offered you a job every yes. year yes. until you left Formula from 1. 19, from, from October 74 at the Watkins Glen Grand Prix in the States, um, when we were first and second on the grid, first and second on the race, that's the first time Chapman ever talked to me, wandered <laughs> down the pits. Before that, I might have had a, I might not have actually, I can't really remember, but I barely got a nod. Really? In 73 <laughs> and all through 74, you know, I used to walk past Chunky in the pits a lot and, you know, you wouldn't, he, he was understandably quite an aloof guy. He'd achieved a hell of a lot and I was this young upstart yeah. from the colonies. Um, but uh, after the race, we, I was walking down the pit lane and he walked, he squared up in front of me and walked straight to me, he put his hand out and he said, that's the way to do it. And that night, I got an offer through a third party for a job and then consistently after that. Really? Uh, but, I, but you know what, it wouldn't have worked. <laughs> yeah, do you think because two, two yeah, similar minds? Yeah, we're too, we're too, I was, I was very autocratic in those days, yeah. and very because I had to do everything. I was the only person running the technical side, the only person designing the cars. I had nobody in the yeah. design office but me. So I was incredibly single-minded and autocratic, and I think probably even more so than Chunky, because by that time he he had several. He, Chapman's always been very very good at selecting good people around him, and I like to think I am now. So I've grown into a Chapman, yeah. if you like. And probably if you go back to the 50s, Chapman was probably very autocratic when he was yeah. on his own, very autocratic and stuff. But he's always worked with and lent on people like Coston, yeah. you know, for example, for all the aerodynamics work where I used to have to do everything myself. But nevertheless, I think deep down there, we're very similar people and that never worked. Yeah.
I think we would have stood arguing most of the time. <laughs> yeah, but when because you, you you got a job at Brabham. Yeah. Um, and but quite soon afterwards, Birdie took the team over. That's right. And he was told, I think, by Ron Toronac, fire Gordon and keep everyone else. Well, you but know, he fired everyone else and kept. Well, you, you. know what? I've still <laughs> never got to the bottom of that. Right. There are all sorts of people around who would lay claim to the fact that they were the one that told Bernie um, to keep me. Right. Okay. And get rid of everybody else. I, and and I'm not joking. There are three or four people that have said to my face, "It was me that told Bernie." I think the truth is, Bernie probably. I've asked Bernie. Yeah. And he's never said to me. Somebody else came up to him and told them. I'm not sure that's true. Mm, right. But um, I think, I think he sussed. I hope. I like to think he sussed me out. You know, because I was doing. I was doing a lot of the stress calculations and suspension geometry work and stuff. I was given that quite early when, when they found out I could do all the engineering behind the design. Yeah. I got a lot of that work to do on the Formula 2, Formula 3 cars and, and even the Formula 1 cars. Um, and then I think of course the other kickstart was me doing a complete car for Alain de Cadenet for Le Mans in yeah, 72 course, yeah. which was exactly the right, same period that Bernie offered me the job. And whether, I, I really don't know. I think there's probably an element that he was going to lose me because I was going to leave and go to and work with Alan. Yeah. Right. Um, glad I didn't. Because um, I got to do the Le Mans car anyway by moonlighting. And that car did very well at Le Mans on a budget of 5,000 quid. That's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely amazing. What was, what was Bernie like to work for? Because I mean, He was fantastic. Because I always find that the people who actually worked for Bernie, yeah. Think he's great. Yeah, he was fantastic. And, and actually, the, his, some of his biggest supporters, are yeah. people who worked for him, or you know, ex Brabham people, yeah, still in Formula One today. Absolutely. Yeah, he. I think the the good thing about Bernie is he got on and did what he was good at, which was finding the money, and he, he had a lot to do with the aesthetics on, in the team. You know, people look at the Brabhams and they go, "Wow, they're pretty cars." Yeah, the lines are pretty, but I think the the paint schemes yeah. help as well. And Bernie was a lot to do with the livery and the team clothing. First people to have a big smart Arctic truck and stuff like that, you know. Um, but when it came to the cars and running the technical side of the business, he left me alone. Yeah. He absolutely left me alone and trusted in me. And that's the best thing you can do. Um, but was there ever an element of doubt? Because, I mean, you, you hadn't been over from South Africa for, for no, that long. No. And suddenly you were designing a whole Formula One car. Well when I well it's actually worse than that because I, I wasn't just designing the cars, I was um, doing some of the hiring and firing. I was in the workshop organising the parts, the parts that had to be packed on the truck for the next Grand Prix. And how old were you at this stage? Uh, well that, that's I think back now, I think I was running the business properly because I went from designer Bernie promoted me to chief designer, which was the end of 1972. So I would have been, I had just turned 26, 25, 26, I mean. And then within a year, I was technical director and running the business. So I was 26 years old, running a Formula One team and designing all the cars. And when I think back now, my blood runs cold. 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, at age 25, I couldn't even turn up to work on time, yeah, let I mean, alone run anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and the responsibility, you know, with the drivers and stuff and, and developing the cars and designing yeah. the cars, getting them to each race meeting. And the management team was basically Herbie Blash and me. That was it. You know, Herbie was team manager. Yeah. Uh, and of course, Bernie, at the race meetings, Bernie was there. But during the week, you know, all this had to happen with just Herbie and myself. Yeah. Um, and I, I, now, as I say, I think back, I'm terrified. I, would have, I should have been terrified, but I wasn't. Do you I, think that was a matter of ignorance is bliss? Uh, a little bit. Yeah. But I think probably I was, I've, I've softened a lot. I, I was very self-opinionated, yeah. autocratic, <laughs> thought I knew everything, which of course you don't. Um, so I think a lot of it was self-confidence. Really? Whether that was misplaced or not, I don't know. But so I mean, one of the one of my favourite Formula One cars of all time mm. is is the Brabham fan car. Yeah. Just because of the amazing solution to a problem mm. and and its story as well. I, you know, obviously Bernie didn't want it to to race. We can go on to that in a bit. But did, am I right in thinking that you used to you disguise the fan with a dustbin lid? We didn't disguise it. We we wanted we didn't want people to see the detail of the stator and the hub because it had there were several problems. Everybody thought led by Chapman. Everybody Chapman tried everything to get that car banned. Everything really? at the race meeting, after the race <laughs> meeting, because he could see his. They just you have to put himself yourself in his shoes. Yeah. They just invented the ground effect wing car yeah. with sliding skirts, which had probably at least 50% more downforce than everybody else. And it was just going to clean up the championship with Andretti. Yeah. And then this car comes along, that's got 100% more downforce than them in slow speed corners, <laughs> and probably even more in high speed corners. And it's got downforce all the way around the circuit, <laughs> independent of car speed. So he could see, Chemis, you know, an engineer, he could see the championship was over, basically. Yeah. So he tried everything. So we didn't want people to to catch on to the issues you had. So if you looked in the back of the fan, you could see one of the clutches and the hub and the, and the, and the stator. We had to recover the static pressure after the fan and stuff like that. So we just found a dustbin. Somebody, one of the guys, found a dustbin lid. It just happened to fit, and it was just to stop people looking in, Brilliant. taking photographs. Brilliant. Um, because everybody thought, and Chapman said, "Look, you know, you might as well, you might as well stop it now, because everybody will have a fan on the back by the next race, and we'll all be the same again." Which is absolute nonsense, because the, the, the thing we had, the drive for the fan was so complicated, because again, it was solving problems. So yeah. the fan itself, as you've said, the fan itself solved the problem we had with not being able to have a wing car because of the yeah. wide engine. But within the fan, there were several problems to solve. And in those days, it was just David North and myself in the office. So between the two of us, we had to solve all those issues. And the thing ended up with four different clutches Blimey. to make it work. And but the, the, the fan blades kept breaking. I think the first yes. time they yeah. didn't break was at the circuit. Well, that's because at the last minute, we they were nylon filled. Uh, they were composite. They were plastic, a nylon plastic, nylon based plastic with short fiberglass um, reinforcement. And that wasn't enough for the centrifugal force. The fan was running at 7,900 revs at 
12.2 on the engine. I, I geared it down to 7.9 because we worked out that anything over the 8,000 would explode. Right. Centrifugal force. So we ran it at 7.9 max. Yeah. And, and it ran quite well for the first few tests and then suddenly one just let go. Um, <laughs> oh dear. So we, the, the, the hub that held the fan blades was a two-part hub. So that had to resist the centrifugal force as well. And that was also the two of these nylon fiber reinforced moldings. Yeah. And that was fine. Um, but every now and again, we just have a fan disintegrate from the centrifugal force. It would literally pull the blade off the spindle. So um, at very near the last minute, with just one test to go, we cast all the blades of magnesium. Right which was a massive amount of effort before we had to, we didn't have CAD in those days, everything had to be hand-drawn and patterns made. And we cast all the blades and machined them and fitted them to the hub. And we were doing the final test before Sweden, I think it was Brands Hatch. And because the blades were heavier, the hub exploded. So we had literally one week to go. And then we had to machine, again before CNC, we had to machine the two parts of the hub out of solid aluminium. So when we arrived in Sweden, we had no idea if the fan would last the race. And, uh, that's amazing, isn't it? The, I, I mentioned obviously earlier that um, Bernie sort of agreed not to run it, but it wasn't actually banned. No, it was never banned. No, it was never it's banned. It's been so misreported. I'm doing a, finally getting around to doing a book this year. Oh, great. And the book is the, the exhibition was the book, and the book is the exhibition. Yeah. It's not on my life. Yeah. It's 50 years of car design. Right. And um, that finally just clears up a lot of, there's a lot of rubbish talked about yeah. by. Because we've never had a big publicity machine at Brabham, mm. people just sort of wrote what they wanted because nobody, they had nobody to talk to. I wasn't, yeah, <laughs> I wasn't that good with the press. I was always too busy and I was yeah. always very grumpy with the press. I had a bad reputation. I just got it. I just wanted to win races and championships. Yeah. So. Um, a, lot, a lot of stuff was written that was supposition or rumour or whatever. Yeah. So the book, you know, it's a great chance to clear that up. And likewise, when I went to McLaren Formula One, there was a lot of rubbish written about who designed what and yeah. everything. So it's a good opportunity to clear up all that stuff. Right. So, I, I was, so it was never banned. Yeah. So I was, well, was going to come on to McLaren in a second, but mm. I really wanted to ask you about the refueling because um, yes. that's. I was I was reading. You were talking about in another interview the list of problems that you had. Yes. And it's not it's, it's not a case of just thinking oh we'll we'll refuel the car yeah. and that was it. No. Because at that time none of the the hubs weren't right to get the wheels nope. off quickly. Nope. And then ultimately you were playing with a bomb. Yep. And and one of the cars did explode. Didn't it they? did. Yeah, poor recall. Yeah. So just run me through a couple of the biggest problems well, that you had because it is. Well, my life. <laughs> I mean, my whole. What I love about looking back at my life, my whole life has been looking, almost looking for the next challenge, and that is problems to solve. And the big ones are, you know, design a Formula One car is going to win a championship, but that within that, there's always a myriad of smaller problems. Yeah. And I love problem solving. Design, innovative design, is problem solving. Normal right. engineering design, you can take something, you know, you can take that signpost and make a slightly better one. Yeah. That's not a challenge. No. You know, a challenge for me is breaking the new boundaries, breaking all the rules, moving stuff on in a big step. That's what I love. And within those big steps, there are a myriad of small problems to solve, and I love that too. Yeah. So 
the fuel the fuel stop thing. I can't believe nobody's thought of it before. Yeah. Everybody knows from qualifying or practicing on empty tanks to practicing on full tanks that in those days, and it's probably similar today, in those days, one pound of weight, half a kilo, if you like, of weight was a hundredth of a second allowed. And it was pretty linear, you know. Yeah. You put you put a uh, hundred pounds of fuel in and it was a second allowed. So it's not it's not Einstein stuff. It's just it's schoolboy mathematics. You know, it's like well, okay, the laps it's seventy two laps the race. Yeah. You know, um, if you can if you can slow down, I took an average over all the circuits, apart from Long Beach and Monaco, which I thought a fuel stop would be not good because you'll come out in traffic. Yeah. So we we built the tank just big enough to do Long Beach and Monaco because they, they were the lowest fuel consumption. Just big enough. So it wasn't 50%, it was about a 60% tank. Yeah. Um, just big enough to do that. And then you had all these problems like, uh, as you say, wheel changing. In those days, if you had a puncture, it could take you a minute and a half to put a new tire on. Amazing, and take the safety pin out, <laughs> you know, get the gun, go and find the tire and stuff. So I did, it was the early days of video, so I did a lot of video work. I said to the guys, right, this is our first attempt at captive nuts and the gun, um, automatic pins that pop back in for safety yeah. after and all that stuff. So you're going to do it in the workshop and we are going to video you. Right. And then we'd sit round and look at the video and go, yeah, well, there you go. there's a lag. So how do we fix that? We had air jacks. Yeah. But it was also because then, well, in the later times, hmm. you couldn't pressurise the fuel. But you were obviously pressurising yeah, the fuel well, with how it, many it, bar? It's two and a half bar. They were, <laughs> was ridiculous. It was, it was a bomb, yeah. So, but then you obviously had to get the air out. Yes. But in order to do that, what, what was the system you came up with? Okay, eventually? so what, what we had was, it, in order to get uh, 30 gallons of fuel in, in two and a half seconds, um, we had to go to a very, very big diameter pipe, which meant that the pipe was quite heavy and inflexible. And the, and the two guys, one, one, had a one side had a breather, which went to the top of the tank, obviously, which let the air out just as quickly as the fuel was coming in, otherwise the car would explode. Um, and the other side had the big filler pipe, and the both guys had handles. And I tried to design, to stop a car exploding, I tried to design many, many different interlocks, mechanical interlocks between one side of the tank and the other, so yeah. you physically couldn't push the fuel pipe on or turn it to open it until the other guy had it on. And we tried all these, and they were all complicated, and David and I were looking at it, we could, see, we could just see one of them going wrong, where the interlock broke or it yeah. didn't work, and the car exploding with the driver in it yeah. and everything. So, uh, in the end, I said to the guys, because I looked at one of the videos, and when the, when the tank was only that wide at the top, so you had the filler and the breather, and when the guys were leaning over, their faces were only about a foot apart. Right. So, eventually, what we said, I said to the breather guy, you look, they were naturally looking down because they had to locate the filler. You don't turn that until it's on and you know it's on and then you look up 
and the fuel guy, you look up, once you've got yours on, you look up all the time. And until you see the whites of the guy's eye, you don't open the fuel. And that's what we did. And it worked. But I love the fact that one of the most sort of complex problems yep. was solved with just human eye contact. Yep. That's and brilliant. it worked. We never had an accident in a race. But, but we were testing at Paul Ricard and we had drawn a different type of breather to let the air out even more quickly. And it came in at the filler and it was cranked up to the top of the tank. Yeah. And by mistake, the boys had fitted it facing down. <laughs> So as soon as as soon as the fuel got up to and blocked the breather, yeah. there was nowhere for two and a half bars worth of air and fuel, <laughs> fuel to go, and and we were standing in the pits and there was this almighty bang and the guy, the mechanic sitting in the seat, jumped up like that, and this we didn't see it but this column of fuel, big column of fuel went up through the tank up into the air and came down as a vapor, and there really? were thirty gallons of fuel in the air. So it was, it was actually raining fuel. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing we had to invent was tyre heaters. Of course, yeah. Because and you, you basically created the first tyre ovens. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so we worked out, <coughs> I think at bogey time, I, I started saying earlier, we took an average of all the circuits apart from Monaco and Long Beach. Yeah. And I think the bogey time was 26 seconds. So slowing down, because there were no speed limits in the pit lane. So right. you could come down the pit lane at 140 miles an hour, which we used to do. Blimey. So you, you and go out at the same speed and some of the pit lanes were really narrow. Um, I got hit on the foot by Emerson Filippoldi and Carl Army to chuck me up in the air in a fuel stop once. And uh, anyway, um, that was before fuel stops that clobbered me. Anyway, it was, he, it, it was dangerous. <laughs> it was, I don't think he even knew. <laughs> it was dangerous. and. Um, so we worked out 26 seconds was about the bogey t- average time. Right. So you had to slow down, come into the pit, stop, refuel, put new tyres on and go out. And if your time lost was 26 seconds or less, you would win every race. Right. Without a doubt. Because it wasn't just the weight of the fuel, the centre of gravity of the car was a little bit lower on half tanks. Right, okay. So yeah. your cornering force was a bit lower. And of course, you had fresh tyres on, and fresh tyres for the first 10 laps were worth another second a lap. So you had all this compound equation to work out, and it makes me laugh because I had, I drew up an A4 sheet um, for every race meeting, and every circuit was slightly different, and I had all these um, inputs into the equation that we wrote down, David and I wrote down every race we went to, and that gave us the bogey time at the bottom and the lap we should stop on. Right. Um, and nowadays they have you know team strategy teams of people at back of yeah. the base, dozens of people at the circuit all working on when they should stop. But this was just one day for <laughs> sheet of paper, and it was pretty obvious we were we were going to win, you know, um, win the championship if we if we were reliable. Uh, but the, the amazing thing was that the second year, no one copied you. No, because even having been shown uh, that's the that, future, that is mind-boggling. Actually, that is because because we had such unreliable turbos and engines in '82. Yeah. Yeah. We we very rarely got to the pit stop, so people would see all these. The, the, the tire heaters were like a blue TARDIS, you know, like yeah. a telephone box um, with a gas heater in the bottom of the chimney at the top, and 
people would see all this equipment and they saw all the special air guns and the racks for the tyres and stuff and they, they sort of sussed what we were doing and then I think Austria, I think it was Austria was the first first time we actually got to the pit stop but because we never finished the race or whenever we did get to a pit stop we the turbo packed up or the engine packed yeah. up, we never finished the race. Yeah. So people couldn't see the advantage but you could calculate the advantage. Yeah. I would I have thought every other designer would have sat down and done the sum. Yeah. And they didn't. Amazing, isn't it? So we got to Brazil, the first race, and I said to Bernie, you know, I'm sorry, you know, we, we failed miserably. Everybody's going to turn up with pit stop cars, but, no you know, did. we're all the same. Yeah. And Williams had a half-hearted, it wasn't fitted to the car yet, but they had a kit. I think they still had a full tank size car, yeah. but they had a kit of bits that they could fit fillers right. and okay. breathers and a... And, and they, I think they fitted that in practice and tried, and I think they had a fire from memory. Yeah. But nobody else did. Amazing, isn't it? But the, um, I've got there's so much to talk about with you, but I must, we must talk about McLaren for a bit, because mm -hmm. you, you agreed to go to McLaren, but for three years only in the Formula Yeah, well, I was looking, typically, again, I was looking for a new challenge. I thought, you know, I had a fantastic time at Brabham with Bernie. We'd had 17 years couple of championships, a couple of near misses at two championships, another couple of championships, won loads of races, been there, done that a bit. Um, I'd run through V8s, flat 12s, V12s, yeah. turbos, four-cylinder turbo engines, so sort of done it. And I was yeah. looking, I was honestly looking for a new challenge and probably something to do with road cars. I'd always wanted to do more road cars. And, um, and then, but Ron was very persuasive, persuaded me to sign for McLaren, but I was absolutely adamant it would be for three years, and three years only. But were you surprised it worked out as well as it did? Because, I mean, you've always been quite a sort of free spirit in terms, you know, it's like yeah, McLaren used to have a bit of nail varnish and, yeah. uh, well, you know, no, the, I had the that fun rich, shirts, uh, but uh, then Ron is not, no, he's I, not that man. I knew, in fact, the, the lawyer I went to, I went to a really good lawyer in London to draw up a contract. And um, he said, look, you're going to be, you know, the odd person out in that team and you ought to write into your contract, you can dress how you like. And I said, well, I'm going to dress how I like anyway. And he said, no, 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 no. Really? So he actually wrote it into my contract that outside race meeting hours, yeah. you know, I didn't have to wear the travel gear and all that stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and I didn't, of course. <laughs> did, how did that sit with Ron? Was, that, was it yeah, awkward? Yeah, fine. No, no, he yeah. was fine. I'm sure inside he was probably not best pleased. Yeah. But in the early years with Ron, we got on really fine. Again, he let me get on with it. Yeah. The tricky bit at McLaren was there was a lot of anti-feeling in the team because when Barnard left, there was a committee under a guy called Steve Nichols. Yeah. There was a committee who had sort of done the design for 87. I joined them at the end of 86, yeah. I think around October time. And basically they took, John's, John's car was fantastic, MP4-1, yeah. um, the first proper carbon car. The carbon I used was monolithic, John did it properly with the honeycomb right. uh, structure and stuff in, in 81. And that basic design they just kept. Right. And it was really quick in 81 whenever it was, 82, 83, but it was starting to wear a bit thin and other people yeah. were catching up and, and, be, and being a bit more innovative and stuff in other areas. And the car they had designed 
when I got there, unfortunately, or fortunately, maybe, funny enough, because it let me concentrate on the 88 car. The car was already finished yeah. in design, and they were starting to make tools and everything. And it was basically just a revamp of John's car from 86. It wasn't very different at all. Um, and the, the, but the cars that you've actually penned, the yep. 88 car, 89 and 90, 90 yep. three, world, three world championships. Yep. Because, I mean, Ron couldn't get across with what you were wearing if you were winning. No, no, absolutely. You know, when, when yeah. Ron employed me, he said, look, all I'm interested in is winning world championships. And I said, me too. Yeah. And that was it. So he said, just get on with it. Anything you like. You want to spend more than 100 grand at anyone, on any one thing, come and see me. But otherwise, get on with it. But the problem I had was there was a lot of bad feeling because after John was very dictatorial right. and very good designer and he ran the place I'm sure with an iron fist yeah. suddenly this group of designers there wasn't actually chief designer material there um, Neil, Neil Oakley was learning very quickly and he was a good designer probably the best person there by a mile Steve Nichols didn't have much of a design background never done a car before on his own yeah and and the car that they produced as a sort of committee was a sort of yeah a revamp of John's car but by then it was just all wearing a little bit thin yeah so I thought right that's good I'll leave you know we'll run that car and we made some small improvements during the season but it didn't set the world on fire yeah but what a great opportunity clean sheet of paper again for 88 with the Honda Turbo, and I did all the Honda license. I got on really well with Osama Gotto, who was running the Turbo program, and I, I got on very well with Neil Oakley, um, from a personal point of view and from a design engineering point of view. And we, we had a clean sheet of paper again. Yeah. So the, the group of guys that did, did the bits that we were gonna leave the same, like the monocoque was not much different, the same with the way we made it. The only thing we changed was I changed the front suspension over to my roller and track pull rod, which we'd used on the Brabham BD48 Alpha for the first time. Um, we used that on the front, but otherwise I let the guys get on with that bit. But the big change on the car was the laydown position and the rear end, the whole rear end was yeah. very, very radical uh, to make the aerodynamics better and to match up with the low line car the drive shafts because um, Honda already had quite a low crank being a 1.5 litre and relative to the BM which was quite a tall narrow engine it's quite a low engine and it was a new clutch out and Honda were able to even lower the crank even more because of the smaller clutch diameter which was fantastic because that fitted the engine behind the driver's shoulders with the lay down position. Yeah. It was a very radical driving position. And once, because at the time, obviously, it's one of the most famous driver pairings in Formula One, mm. um, Senna and Prost. What was it like working with Senna and Prost? I loved Prost? it. I loved it. Everybody says, wow, that must have been a nightmare. But actually, it was brilliant. I mean, brilliant. what a great problem to have. I, li I like managing the strategy at racetracks anyway. Yeah. And for the first time in my life, I had engineers on the cars. Because yeah. in Brabham, <laughs> I used to engineer both cars stupidly. <laughs> I had David to help me, but I mean, you know, I had to literally stop and talk. We had drivers queuing up, you know, I'd be talking to Reutemann. Pache would be queuing up to talk to me behind Reutemann. Really? Modify Reutemann's car, I'd go and Pache would move and I'd speak to him, you know. It was ridiculous <laughs> when I look back. Whereas at McLaren, I inherited these guys. Um, I had three 
really good race engineers, you know. Steve Nichols was a pretty good race engineer. Neil was a very good race engineer. I had another guy called Tim Wright. Yeah. So I had those on the cars, and all I had to do was stand over them, talk to the drivers, um, and get the best for the team out of all the inputs from practice or qualifying or whatever. But I did have a few rules, um, and one of them was at Brabham, and to get the best out of the drivers, I always insisted that the debrief was with both drivers and both engineer, or all right. the engineering staff together. Yeah. Brabham was easy because that was David and me. Yeah. All the engineering staff together. Whereas at McLaren, they used to go off and have little huddles. Oh, yeah. And it was like because Senna, obviously, Senna wanted to have an advantage over Prost and vice versa. So I insisted that we sat in the truck and and debriefed together. So we got the benefit for the team. Right. And then they could make their tire choice. Yeah. And I had a few rules like that which worked really well, but I, I loved working with them. I think Prost was a little bit suspicious of me in the beginning because of the painted fingernails and the long hair and the funny shirts and things, <laughs> plastic sandals and stuff. But, um, but Ayrton I got on with very, very well. Yeah. Now, we, we can't not talk about the McLaren F1. And one, one of the stories that I love that kind of, for me, explains the project mm. so well is the fact that there were two weights of washer yep. and in order to use the heavier washer anywhere in the car the, the relevant person had to come and see you and argue the case why you needed to use a heavier washer yes <laughs> now that that was practical but it was also psychological right okay because you had you had two thicknesses of washer you did you had turns and chamfered washers and stamp washers and it, it was to instill in people that doesn't matter how small the part was, you have to think about what you're doing, otherwise the car won't be light. And I had a, several other things too. I had one of them was, if anybody wanted to use anything bigger than a 10 mil diameter bolt, they had to bring me the calculations and show me why. And another one I had, I had, I won't say what manufacturer it was, but we had an air conditioning compressor bracket, which right. was a bracket designed to mount the air conditioning compressor to the engine. It's the most, it's the worst load path, heaviest bracket I've ever seen in my life. And I put that on top of a cabinet as you walked into the design office. Right. So everybody had to walk past it every morning and past it on the way out for lunch right. or when they left. So I did several things like that. Um, and I signed off every single drawing. And if I yeah. thought something was too heavy, they got to know about it. Or the yeah. load path was incorrect, they got to know about it. And it was that fanatical approach that made the F1 what it was. Yeah. But it's, it, that's what it, what's so great about the F1 was it, it was a single-minded vision. Mm -hmm. And hypercars, supercars now, how many hundreds of people do they have all feeding into their different areas? You know, there's an interior yep. designer, an exterior designer. Um, so really, the like of the McLaren F1, we're not going to see again, are we? Unless something radical changes, something radical happens. Um, I, I think it's unlikely. I think the car I'd like to do next will be done the same way. Um, with the same sort of team, the same sort of approach, the same ethos for the design. Yeah. And whether that will achieve that or not, I don't know, but it'll certainly have exactly that approach. It's, it, it, it makes a better car, doesn't it? Definitely. Yeah. It, it makes a more, 
It certainly makes a more individual and unique car, but it generally means too that the car will be a better car from a driving experience yeah. because it's purer. Now, it's, I, it's, it's, you never want to talk about sort of life regrets. I yep. seem to remember um, you once saying one of your life regrets was not driving the McLaren F1 to Le Mans yeah, when it won. Uh, yeah. Is that really, does that still bug you? It does. It really <laughs> does. Because, but, and the reason why we didn't, if, if we built that car for racing and said, you know what, this has got a crack at beating the prototypes and winning the race, we would have almost certainly driven it to the circuit. But we didn't have a clue. I didn't yeah. have a clue. I, th I thought it would be nice to finish in the top three in the GT category. And if really? we won the GT category, fantastic. But that wasn't a big enough accolade to drive, make a statement by driving the car. Yeah. But you know, it's, it's, I still regret it. But on the other hand, if I had my life over again, I'd probably still make the same decision and not drive it. Yeah. But you, you, I mean, Le Mans wasn't its first race. It was, it was quick. Oh yeah. Up until then, wasn't it? I mean, yeah, it, it was blindingly quick in the, um, in the BPR Global Championship. Well, yeah. well, it won the championship easily, both years, 95 and 96, but um, but Le Mans's different. Le Mans's very difficult. I think I think it's the most difficult to race to win on the planet. Really? Yeah. Were you, you sound you didn't have more involvement with Le Mans? Because, I mean, you, you know, your, your career was very F1 dominated, obviously you, yeah, you, know, you, well, you the, did cars for Le Mans. But that was the reason why I didn't have more to, I, I loved Le Mans, and my taste of Le Mans 72, particularly as the car did so well, the, the Duckham's Ford for the Canon Academy, yeah. I would have loved to have gone back, but actually, you know, from 73 onwards, being the, being the only person in the office for the first year. Yeah, years, you weren't going to go off to Le Mans for you, a you, weekend you away. Just had, you, <laughs> I had no, the first 11 years of Formula One, I had three weeks holiday. Really? In 11 years, so uh, I had no time to do anything else. I might edit that bit out in case my boss watches this. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's, there was no time to do anything else. And also, to be fair, if you didn't focus, Formula One was all involving. If you didn't focus 100%, you couldn't win races. Yeah. Um, so I was absolutely focused on on uh, Formula One. But you, you still, do you, I mean, you still go to motorsport events, but particularly the Isle of Man TT. Isle of Man, yeah, I've been twenty times. Uh, I used to go to a MotoGP every year, but I yeah. haven't done that for a few years. But I want to revive that um, if I can, and I'd like to go back. I'd like to go back to a Grand Prix. I'd like to go back to a Grand Prix with McLaren, actually, um, and, and just and just see, you know, see what what the atmosphere is like now. Yeah. Do, do you, does Formula One, I mean, I don't think Formula One would ever leave you cold, but the kind of the, the current cars. Yeah. Would you, I mean, say for example, you're 40 years younger, would you be excited about working at Formula One today? No, I don't think I would. Having done Formula One, if I've yeah. never done Formula One, yes, always, yeah. because it's the pinnacle of motorsport. But, but having done Formula One and been lucky enough to do it in the period yeah. I did it, I would. I. It doesn't excite me at all the idea of going back. Formula One racing. I mean, any racing, I love. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. I'm a petrol head. I grew up with racing in my blood. You know, I used to race myself. I still love it. But I would. Ha I wouldn't like to be involved in the design side. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe going back. You know, if I was a bit younger, going back as a strategist or helping a team that wasn't doing so well lift themselves up a bit, that would be fun. Yeah. 
Um, do, you, uh, do you think that the solution in Formula One is, a, is some form of budget cap? Yeah, I mean, I did, funnily enough, Motorsport, about six years ago, Motorsport did a podcast with me and then a follow-up article, which is still available yeah, online. That, that was that was me. There you go. Yeah. Of course it was, yes, yeah, of course it was, yeah, because yeah. that's why we, we talked about this, didn't we? Yeah. And now that, if honestly, I read it again the other day, that actually would take a massive chunk out of the budget. Yeah. There'd be a lot of redundant people. And it would also make Formula One much more interesting again. The yeah. powertrain is the one they've got to fix to get some to get some emotion yeah. back into it. But but from a car regulation point of view, still today, I read them just the other day, somebody was asking me about them actually. If you applied those regs, uh, the racing would be better and lower cost. Yeah. But for, for, for those that haven't read the article, it was basically it was things like smaller front wings, actual... It was... Uh, yeah, it was focusing, giving the designers a little bit more ground effect in the middle yeah. of the car, near the centre of gravity, and defocusing the aerodynamics on the front and rear wings. So the balance coming out of high-speed corners wasn't affected so badly. And then you could dump the the, the, the um, artificial downforce reduction. Yeah, um, and go back to normal aspirate, normally aspirated. Reducing the contact patch of the tyres means you're forced to run harder compounds. Yeah. And that means that braking distances get longer, yeah. for example. Um, so it's, it's natural things. Um, and, and, you know, this communication business, the, the amount of money that must be spent on the telemetry and the communication and stuff like that. Um, well, just the sheer number of people. Yeah. I mean, and, and I'd like to get it back. I agree with Bernie in a lot of instances. I'd like to get it back to having a more driver championship focus again. Yeah. Um, and uh, what, what do you think about the new owners, Liberty Media? Well, they, they, what an opportunity. Yeah. You know, what a fantastic opportunity to get thing to get the thing back on track. And they've got Rory, uh, not Rory. Uh, they've got um, um, Ross Ross Braun yeah. on board, who's you know got a really good head on his shoulders, yeah. and hopefully they'll listen to Ross. And uh, it's a fantastic opportunity to get things right again. Um, yeah, it's it's. I think it's probably the cleanest or the, the freshest bit of paper yeah. that Formula One has had for how many decades? I mean, tens of decades. Yeah, it's it's sort of one of the, perhaps the most the, the cleanest ever. Sure. Um, so, Gordon, just before you go, what I'd love to do is play a game of word association with you. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm, I'm literally going to name names um, or things, and I want to get your initial reaction mm -hmm. to the first thing that comes into your head. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'll start with Ron Dennis. Uh, good businessman. Nelson Piquet. Fantastic team member. TBR. Great brand. McLaren F1. Um, pinnacle of my career probably. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say that, there's still more to come. Uh, I, I should just say, I, I set myself a rule of not asking follow-up questions mm. to these. Okay. Um, Bernie Eccleston. Yeah, great memories. Nicky Lider. Uh, brilliant fun and a good driver. Refueling. Don't know why nobody else thought of it. <laughs> Colin Chapman. Still my hero. Ayrton Senna. Uh, 
one of the top three drivers ever. Okay, I'm going to have to ask a follow-up follow question. Who are the other two? Uh, Jimmy Clark, absolutely, and probably Fangio. Right. Or Novolari. Yeah. And the final one, Alan Prost. Yeah, great, really worthy champion. I'd say a good all-round champion rather yeah. than just, you know, one thing. He yeah. was a really holistic driver. Yeah, brilliant. Gordon, thank you so much for Pleasure. joining me on, on a little tour around, around West Sussex. Um, best of luck with the IGM and the TVR mm -hmm. and all the other projects that you're doing, because I don't know how, how many there are. Yeah, well, I think we're, we're in the, probably the most exciting part of my career now, yeah. so I'm getting some good stuff. Excellent. Well, we'll have to get you back in a year's time and see where you've got to. Yep. Yeah. Thank you very much. Cheers, Ed.